I'm, I'm kind of uh, looking at this start of a new thing tonight with uh, sort of a sense of bittersweetness. You know, I, I've enjoyed looking at the life of David and all the various things that he had to endure and the victories as well. And, uh, we uh, ended our time in Second Samuel, and uh, although David is still on the throne where we left him, we're not going to continue in the Old Testament where we might have. Uh, ordinarily, we would have probably gone to perhaps something like First Kings to continue the story of David there. But instead, I've taken a detour tonight, and uh, for the next presumably several weeks, we're going to be in the New Testament and I think I had told you a couple of weeks ago that I was kind of undecided about whether we would go to 1 Corinthians or to Ephesians. And I have decided tonight we will begin our study in the New Testament on our Thursday night meetings in the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you'll turn there with me. By way of introduction, Corinth is in the territory of Europe known in that day as Achaia. It was the southern part of what is known today as Greece, and the northern part was Macedonia. And Corinth and its sister city, Sancria, uh, um, were and are located in what is known as an isthmus, which is a very, very narrow tract of land that kind of separates Macedonia from Achaia. And since Achaia was a very large tract of land that separated the um, Ionian Sea from the Aegean Sea, this little tract of land became very, very important. And that's one of the reasons why Corinth had become as populous and as wealthy as they were in that first century time that the Apostle Paul had been there. Going back all the way to 146 B.C., Rome conquered the city of Corinth and utterly destroyed it. But then about 100 years after that, in 46 B.C., Julius Caesar decided to rebuild the city. And that rebuilding process went very quickly, and it was uh, very uh, wonderfully supported by uh, the various uh, tradespeople, the merchants, who found that to be a very great advantageous place to be able to move their ship's cargo from the Ionian Sea to the Aegean Sea. Instead of going all the way southward and around the peninsula of Achaia, which was a very dangerous shipping experience because of the high gale winds around that peninsula southern tip of Achaia and the very many islands and, and rocks and everything that they had to try to avoid. Uh, going through that area of the southern part of Achaia was a very treacherous naval journey. But taking instead the waterway that led to that isthmus where Corinth on the western shore by the uh, Ionian Sea, they actually built a system, a track, paved and leveled so that for the four and a half mile journey from the western shore to the eastern shore, they would be able to take their ships with the cargo still loaded on the ships, roll them on rollers across that flat four and a half mile stretch of the isthmus and put them back into the Aegean Sea waters and go on from there into Asia Minor to their destination, whether it was Troas or or Ephesus, or many of the other Miletus or other cities that were located on the eastern sea, uh, eastern uh, according from, from Corinth, but the western shore of the uh, Asian minor territories. Great advantage for them. It saved them a lot of time and a lot of money. Uh, so that was why Corinth and Sancria had become such an amazing, prosperous centers. And you can still go to Corinth today. It's a modern city, but it still has some of the uh, uh, relics from that first century era. One of the most important buildings that existed there was a temple. It was a temple to the goddess 
in Rome known as Venus, but the Greek name was Aphrodite. And in that temple, they had somewhere around a thousand temple prostitutes. It was a very, very prosperous business for them. Corinth was a, a cultural city, but it also uh, was a city that allowed for many of the Roman military uh, personnel to uh, get some kind of R&R, if you will. But the temple prostitutes served that purpose rather willingly, and there were, as I said, around a thousand of them. In fact, Corinth became known for its debauchery as well as its high prosperity and, uh, and uh, you know, beautiful uh, place of where they could settle down if they wanted to. But people who were considered to be drunkards or uh, people that were not exactly in the norm as far as the uh, culture was concerned were called Corinthians, even if they didn't live in Corinth. If they were wicked people, if they were idolatrous people, they would be, or adulterous, they would be considered a Corinthian. Just like a Corinthian was a phrase that was used to uh, kind of slam somebody who was living a, a terrible lifestyle such as that. So Corinth was well known, and it was a very, very major city in the Roman culture of the day. Now, Paul didn't go to Corinth or even anywhere else in Europe on his first missionary journey. He spent all of his time on that first missionary journey in Asia Minor. And when he and Silas began their second missionary journey, it was Paul's intent to revisit all of the churches that had been established in Asia Minor with Silas as his partner instead of Barnabas. So they began their second missionary journey heading toward um, the Asia Minor provinces of Galatia and Bithynia. But the Holy Spirit stopped Paul from going into Bithynia, though that was his original plan. And instead, he went west to Troas, to the eastern shore of the Aegean Sea. And it was there that Paul saw a vision of a man from Macedonia, crying out to him, please come and help us. Now, we're not given the identification of that man. Many believe it was perhaps Luke, because he was indeed a Macedonian. But regardless, Paul took that as an indication that they were to head from Troas. Instead of up northeast into Bithynia, they would cross the Aegean Sea and they would ultimately land in Philippi, where Paul didn't meet a man, he met a woman, a tradeswoman. She was the first convert of Europe in Philippi. And she was a seller of purple, and uh, she and a bunch of people with her were the first converts in Europe. Now, as they were in Philippi for a very short period of time, there happened a woman who was following them who had an evil spirit and she kept on saying this is Paul and he is teaching you about a God and every day she was following after them and Paul became irritated by this and cast out the demon from her. Now the people who owned this woman because she was owned by people who used her for profit, they got mad at Paul and had him put in jail over this. And he was badly beaten, and so was Silas. And in the jail cell, you may remember, Silas and Paul were singing praises unto the Lord, and there was a great earthquake. And the cell doors burst open. And of course, the jailer thought that everybody would have escaped. And being a jailer, he bore the responsibility of making sure that that would never happen. And if they had indeed escaped, then he decided it would be best if he took his own life. But you remember in the story in the book of Acts, Paul told him not to do so, that everybody was still there, and that there was no need for him to take such action. Well, the jailer became a believer. And Paul said to the jailer also, your whole household will be saved. And it was that beginning 
where the Philippian church began to flourish. Now, Paul ended up needing to leave Philippi because of the angry mobs that were gathering against him and the church that he had started. So he went further south down to Thessalonica. And he was in Thessalonica for three, perhaps four weeks max. And he was forced out of Thessalonica by the Jews who would not receive his message. So he went further south down to the next city, major city, Berea. And it was there that he taught the Bereans. And fortunately in Berea, the people, the Jews who heard him, were convinced that he was perhaps telling the truth. But they were very, very noble in that, unlike the Thessalonican Jews, the Berean Jews looked into the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was so. So that's why we sometimes refer to the Bereans as believers who are very noble, and we are to be like the Bereans, uh, imitating them in our willingness to study the Word of God and compare what we're being told to what the Word of God says. And friends, that is so still very important for all of us to be doing today, and especially as the day approaches. Well, from Berea, Paul again was forced out by the Thessalonian Jews who came down to Berea and sought to kill him. So Paul left Timothy and Silas in Berea and Philippi and in Thessalonica, and they were circling through those three towns. Paul went further south, now going down into Achaia, first to the city of Athens. And it was there in Athens that Paul argued with the philosophers on Mars Hill. It was there that Paul saw the the gods that they were worshipping and the uh, idols that were being built or had been built for the worshipping of those gods. One statue stood out among all of those, and it was that which Paul used to proclaim the gospel to those philosophers. For they had a that statue that was built for the purpose of worshiping the unknown God. And Paul has, in Mars Hill, taken the time to meet with them and to declare to them, this is the God that you know only as the unknown God. He's a God who created all things. Well, that created quite uh, an argument among the philosophers. And there were only a few who began to follow after Paul. Some people believe that it was Paul's worst experience in evangelizing a community. I hesitate to say that because I see also, even though there were only a few who believed that Athens became a center for the Christian church in the second and third centuries. Many of the church fathers were born and raised in or around Athens. So those few that Paul did convert were very, very helpful in the ministry of evangelizing that region. But Paul left Athens and went down to Corinth. And in Corinth, Paul immediately had issues with the Jewish leaders in the Jewish synagogue. And we have a great deal of detail about that conflict that is written for us in the book of Acts. And I'd like to go there with you now to see uh, what it is that Paul had to face when he first arrived in Corinth. And by the way, he was there for about 18 months in total. So he stayed there for quite a lengthy period of time, longer than any other place with the exception of Ephesus on his third missionary journey. But in chapter 18 of the book of Acts, we read these words. After having come down from Macedonia, it says, After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. Now Aquila and Priscilla are very well known in the book of Acts, and in several of Paul's letters they are referred to as well. They're dear friends of Paul, and they seem to have been traveling from city to city. We find them in Rome, we find them in Ephesus, we find them here in Corinth as well. 
But he says in verse 3, So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. I find great humor in that. Paul's going to the Gentiles, but he's going to be doing it right next door to the synagogue. It's kind of like saying, in your face, buddy. But he did it because the building that was owned by Justice became available because Justice became a believer. How God moves so wonderfully in the affairs of men. Just as Paul now has begun this ministry, now he has a place where they can meet, not only on Saturdays in the synagogue, but any day of the week. And it's very likely that they began to meet, by the way, on that first day of the week, on Sunday, because Paul will talk about that in this letter to the Corinthians. But it tells us in verse 8, not only was Justice saved, he was a Jew, but Crispus also, who was the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord, it tells us in verse 8, with all his household, and many of the Corinthians hearing, believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. So apparently there must have been some element of uh, concern within Paul's heart that things are going to get difficult as they had in Thessalonica, as they had in Philippi. And there seems to be a great deal of comfort in this statement that Jesus first makes when he appears before Paul, do not be afraid, but speak, do not be silent. Go for it, Paul. I am with you. I have many people in this city. That must have brought Paul great comfort and uh, great uh, encouragement to continue on the work there in Corinth. And he continued there, it tells us, for a long period of time. In verse 11 it says, he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Now when Gallio, who was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat. Now this is at the end of his time in Corinth. And they said, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names of your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Galileo took no notice of these things. But we should. Remember, Crispus was the ruler of the synagogue when Paul first arrived. Now, he became a believer in Jesus Christ. He lost his job as the ruler of the synagogue, obviously. And apparently this man, Sosthenes, took his place. And Sosthenes was among those who tried to get Paul out of this city of Corinth and they had approached Gallio to try to persuade Gallio to do something about this terrible uh, series of events that have led to the evangelization of so many people in the city of Corinth. Gallio wanted nothing to do with this, and as a result of Sosthenes and those who were with him having come to Gallio, apparently several other Greeks, who may or may not have been Christian, but it just says the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. Now, the reason I focus on that is because of what Paul says as he introduces himself in 1 Corinthians, which is where we want to turn now. Because Paul, having gone from Corinth, continued on his journey across the Aegean Sea to Ephesus for a short period of time, on his second missionary journey, now having 
arrived in Ephesus, he had some converts there that he met with, and then he went from there to Caesarea and ultimately to end his journey on the second missionary journey in Antioch. Now, when Paul started his third missionary journey, he went back to Ephesus, and it was there in Ephesus that he wrote this letter, 1 Corinthians, and probably 2 Corinthians, either from Ephesus or from Rome. But we know that he was in Ephesus when he wrote this letter. It was written probably around 55 or 56 AD. That's about four or five years after he was in Corinth. It's also interesting to note that 1 and 2 Corinthians are two of actually three letters to the Corinthian church that Paul had written. One of those three letters has been lost. We don't know what he said in that letter. Uh, we can only draw some uh, assumptions, perhaps, but the letter is not available to us. For whatever reason, God chose not to include it in the canon of Scripture. But we're so blessed to have First and Second Corinthians in our New Testament Bibles. First Corinthians and Second Corinthians total up the largest letter to a single community of believers. And there's a lot of good things that Paul has to say about the Corinthian church. However, there's a lot of very, very important things that he must condemn them for. Corinth, as I said earlier, was a very corrupt city. And a lot of that corruption had crept into the church. And by the time Paul writes this letter, and perhaps the letter previous to this, there were waves of information coming to Paul while he was in other places, this time in Ephesus. The word gets to him that there is a great deal of concern among the believers in Corinth over some of the things that were going on within the church. There were five basic things that Paul addresses in this first letter that we have. The first one is the division in the church. The next is a case of incest. The third is court cases between members instead of taking their arguments to other Christians. They were taking it to the Roman civilian uh, authorities and Paul thought that, that should not be done. Fourthly, they were abusing their Christian freedoms. And lastly, they were doing the wrong things with regard to the Lord's Supper that needed to be corrected. However, it's also in 1 Corinthians that we have the most beautiful passage of Scripture regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ, chapter 15. And we also have the teachings that Paul gives to this church of Corinth and to us regarding the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, and how the Spirit operates within the church proper. And so these are the things that we'll be looking at as we go through First and Second Corinthians, and I hope that it will be a fruitful uh, opportunity for us to examine ourselves as well as, as well as learn about what happened in that first century church. Because quite frankly, I see a lot of things going on in the present church in this age that are really very, very bothersome to me. Doctrinally, there are issues. Morally, there are issues in the church. And the church needs to remember that we are to be ambassadors for Christ. We are to be his spokesmen and women. We are to be his soldiers. And those are the things that we need to understand. How do we accomplish doing those things to please our Lord? Well, the Corinthian church was not doing much of that. They were kind of slipping away into this corruption that had invaded them. It's like what Paul will say later, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So keeping those things in mind, let's look together at what Paul now addresses in this first epistle of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church. I think that I'll start with verse 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. To the church of God, which is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours, grace to you and peace 
from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember, we took some time reading chapter 18 of the book of Acts, and we ended that reading with the mention of an individual who was the ruler of the synagogue after Crispus, and his name was Sosthenes. Now it's not really known with certainty, but it is assumed by just about everybody that I've read so far, there is no one who would argue that this Sosthenes that is with Paul writing this letter is the same Sosthenes as the Sosthenes in Acts chapter 18. If it is, it's a remarkable story of grace and mercy because Sosthenes was an enemy of Paul in Acts 18. Now he stands with Paul in the work of the ministry that Paul is doing while he's in Ephesus. This is an amazing revelation to us if it indeed is the same Sosthenes. It is telling me, I hope it's telling you, that no matter what we may do as enemies of God, if God chooses to save anyone, he will do so. And he can do so. And when he does, he can put that individual into a most prominent position without ever having to worry about whether he should have done it. Because God knows what needs to be done and when and by whom. So, no matter what may have been our past, we can know that when we have accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior, that He is willing to use us. He was willing to use Paul. Paul identifies himself as the chiefest of sinners. Paul persecuted the church, and God reached him and turned him around, and he became the great apostle of the church. Sosthenes also had a past where he was fighting against the church. But in the end, again, if this is the same Sosthenes, he became a very great help to Paul. Notice also that he says, he's writing this to the church of God, which is in Corinth, or assembly of God, which is in Corinth. Now we have a couple of denominations by those two names, church of God and assembly of God. It's not in a denomination that he's referring to here, but he's referring to the corporate body of believers known as the church. The Greek word is ekklesia. Ekklesia just simply means assembly or gathering or calling together of a group of people. But take note of the fact that he says it is the ekklesia or the church of Corinth or which is at Corinth. It's not the church that was built in Corinth, it has nothing to do with the building. It is the church, the people, the ecclesia, that is, the ones who have been brought together, assembled, for the purpose of worshiping God, and serving God, and learning of God, and praising God, and giving God thanks, and God the glory for all that he has done by his grace and mercy, and in his willingness to save the lost from the damnation of eternal hell. That is the church. There is no building involved. There is no denomination involved. It is the people. That's why we call it an organism, not an organization. But he's writing now to the church, which is at Corinth. And then he says, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called saints. Or in my translation, called to be saints. The to be is in italics, which means that it wasn't in the original language. So you can translate this, those who are holy in Christ Jesus called saints. Now, it's kind of a play on words because the word sanctified and the word saints are very close structurally in the original language. They both mean holy, holy ones and holy. And what he's saying is, I want you to understand, those of you who make up the, the corporate body of Jesus Christ in Corinth, you are holy saints. Another way of looking at that word is set-apart ones. And that's what sanctified means. You may remember in the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Numbers, they all spoke of the sanctified vessels. And the sanctified vessels were vessels that were set apart for the service of God in the tabernacle. The same thought is 
brought forward in the Greek language that it contained in that original Hebrew, in that the saints or sanctified ones are set apart for the service of God. And so that's important. Take note of the fact that Paul calls them saints. And that's important as we read further because they don't look like they're very saintly as we find out some of the things that they are doing in Corinth and unfortunately that many in the church are doing today as well. But take note of the fact again that he calls them saints. Now, if you are aware of some of the other churches like the Catholic Church, and I don't mean to pick on the Catholic Church specifically, but they are indeed one of those that really make an effort to glorify specific individuals and call them saints. Above all the other church members, a saint is only designated as a saint in the Catholic Church if it is been, if it has been corroborated by the Pope. The Pope will nominate, if you will, individuals to sainthood, and then they are given that title of saint. And unfortunately, that is so unbiblical, and it is not at all what Paul is saying here to the Corinthians. Paul is saying all of us are saints, because all of us are set apart, sanctified. And the word hagios in the Greek is what we translate the word saint. It's also holy in many other places. You are holy. I don't think that I can make that claim in my own strength, in my own intellect or merit. I'm not. You know, there are a lot of people who would fight against us if we try to convince them that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. And you might hear them say, oh, you're holier than thou uh, kind of attitude is so sickening. Well, we're not holier than anybody. None of us are in and of ourselves holy. That holiness has been imputed to us because it's Christ's righteousness given to us in exchange for our sinful nature. So we have been made to be holy. We've been made to be righteous. It's not our own doing. Let us never forget that. And finally, in verse 3, as we read, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That phrase, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, is something that Paul almost always includes in his letters in the New Testament. In some form or another, grace and peace are included. And it's always grace before peace. It's never peace and grace. It's always grace and peace. And we like that set up because it is by grace that you can have the peace of God and the peace with God. If you don't have grace, you can't have his peace. You can't have his peace without his grace. By grace, through faith, you are saved. It is a gift of God, that not of yourselves, lest any man should boast, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2. So we need to understand grace is important. It comes first. The Greek word is charis, and it basically implies meritless favor. And peace, well, that comes from the Jewish greeting, shalom. And it's translated erenos in the Greek language, but it means the same as the Hebrew word shalom. It's the greeting that every Jew would use. Shalom, shalom. You'll hear it all the time if you go to Israel today, whenever you see somebody walking by you and they greet you with the word shalom. And in the Greek culture, that same kind of phrasing was used by the Greeks with the word kairos. Whenever you would greet somebody with favor in the Greek culture, you would greet them with the word kairos, grace be unto you. Paul combines the two of those words. The Greek culture for the Gentiles, the Jewish culture for the Jewish nation. And together they make up this great introduction of the letters of Paul the Apostle. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he gives thanks for them. He commends them here in this first part of the chapter. And it takes no effort on Paul's part to do so. I believe Paul is so very, very sincere when he says these things about them and about every church that he writes to. 
Verse 4, he says, I thank my God always, not sometimes, not when I get around to it, but always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Jesus Christ. Paul is recognizing that it's God's grace that was imputed to them, given to them. In a miraculous way, they became believers. They were born again, regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit through grace, which was given in abundance by the Lord God Almighty to them. Verse 5 continues, that you were enriched in everything by him, by God, enriched in everything, whatever their need might have been, they were enabled, they were enriched, they were given all the things that were necessary to live for Christ in that day. He says, again, that you were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance and all knowledge, in every word and all knowledge. Paul is saying, you have it all. You've been given such wonderful opportunity as believers in Christ Jesus to recognize that God is moving in you in a powerful way by His Holy Spirit and He's enabling you to know everything you need to know about the Lord God and His wonderful promises and you are actually being used by God in speaking those wonderful promises to all those who are willing to hear and that's why your church has been growing in Corinth because you've been enriched in everything by Him. Oh, how I long to see this present age begin to move in that same direction that they once did in the first century. Remember when Peter preached the first sermon, 3,000 souls were saved. That was a move of the Holy Spirit. But the hearts of the men and women who heard were prepared by God. It is God who brings that about. And so it's our responsibility to proclaim it. It's God's responsibility to use that proclamation for his glory. And he did so marvelously in Corinth and other places in the first century. And I believe also it is happening around the world again today as well. So he says in verse 6, Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you came short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying is there are two things here. You have the gifts of the Holy Spirit that have been poured out among you. You've received nothing short of everything that God has made available to all of the church. That is a remarkable statement. The Corinthian church had it all. And in spite of that, they also had other things going on in the church that they should not have held on to. So you need to understand that the Spirit of God doesn't necessarily bless only those churches that are perfect. Certainly not. And we're not perfect. But it's good for us to desire the blessings of God through the ministry of the Holy Spirit among us. And I pray that we all pray for the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives daily because it's so, so very important in these last days. But not only is it the gifts that have been poured out, but the fact that they were already anticipating the return of Jesus Christ. Take note of what he says in the latter part of verse 7, eagerly waiting, anticipating with excitement, exhilarating excitement over the possibility that he might return now. That's the implication that Paul is writing here in verse 7, waiting eagerly for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you realize what Paul is saying? There are problems in the church that I will be addressing very shortly, Paul is going to say, but in spite of those problems, he has started a good work in you and he has promised to complete it in that day when he returns for his own. That's the promise that they had 2,000 years ago. It's the promise that you and I have as well. He's begun a good work in you as well and he's promised to complete it in that day. And when we see him, he will also confirm us in the end that we may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus, without spot, without wrinkle, pure, holy, completely justified, redeemed, and glorified, sanctified, saved to the bitter end. That's the promise of God to the Corinthian church and also to us as well in this age. Moving forward, he says in verse 9, God is faithful. 
God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That word fellowship is the Greek word koinonia. Very strange word to translate. It's hard to be certain exactly what its full meaning is. Sometimes it's translated fellowship. Sometimes it's translated oneness. Uh, there are several other different minor variations from the original Greek into English. But the idea is that we have a commonality. Koinonia is a commonality of our faith. We all have the same faith. Now, we don't all have the same understanding. We don't all have the same abilities to do the things that we are instructed by the Lord to do. Some people are given different tasks to do. Some people are given different responsibilities in the church. Regardless, though, we all have a commonality of faith in Christ. To each one is given a measure of faith, Paul tells us, and that measure of faith is what we are to use to bring glory to God in service to our King. So now, Paul's done with his introduction. He's identified himself. He's indicated to them that he wants them to know that he loves them and he's thanking God for them. But now he turns to the real heart of the letter. And for the next several chapters, Paul is going to be addressing many concerns that will have been brought to Paul while he was in Ephesus by individuals that are members of the household of one whose name is Chloe. We'll see that momentarily. Chloe is a feminine name. So the household of Chloe is a household in Corinth, and she apparently must be a fairly well-to-do individual, and she's got a very large household, and a contingent from her household have left Corinth, crossed the Aegean Sea, found Paul in Ephesus, and brought him information about the Corinthian church that they felt he needed to know, because he was the one who began that church, and he was the apostle to the Gentiles. And so they were seeking him out for resolution to certain issues that they felt were needing attention by the Apostle. So in verse 10 it says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no division among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Paulos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptize any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. So here we have the first issue that Paul needs to address. It is an issue of exclusiveness. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas, the Aramaic name for Peter. I am of Christ. Paul is saying, wait a minute, you guys, your focus is all wrong. You shouldn't be identifying yourselves with anything other than the fact that you are children of the Most High God. Collectively, you are the body of Christ. Don't isolate yourselves from one another by creating this exclusive club, these cliques, if you will. Sectarianism is a sin, Paul is telling them, and it is. Now, that doesn't mean denominationalism is a sin. I believe very strongly that God allowed for denominations for several good reasons. Probably the primary one is that every one of us has a tendency to like different styles of worship, like different methods of teaching, like different methods of you know, coming together and sitting in a quiet place or sitting in a very boisterous atmosphere. There are various kinds of 
things that people are drawn to. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I think that's where denominations can indeed play a very major and important role in the church. So I don't have any problem with denominationalism as such. But when the denomination begins to say, you guys are all wrong, we only are right, that's where you draw a line and say, uh-uh, we don't go there. That's not correct. That is heresy. That is error that needs to be corrected. Paul is saying that to these Corinthians here in this letter. They were saying, I don't care about you guys. You can follow Paul if you want, but I'm going to follow Cephas. You can follow Apollos if you want, but I'm going to follow Paul. That's not the way it should work. And it should never have been. But that was how they were beginning to move in the Corinthian assembly. They were splitting themselves apart as a result of this division in the church. It should not have happened. And so Paul says, is Christ divided? What's wrong with you guys? Was Paul crucified for you? These are very, very poignant and powerful questions that Paul is asking them. Think about what you're saying. Think about what you're doing. Think about what kind of trouble you are causing with this divisiveness that has been going on. And then he goes on in verse 14 to talk about the fact that, oh, speaking of baptism, I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius. Remember, Crispus was the leader of or the ruler of the synagogue in Corinth, he became a Christian. Paul baptized him. Gaius was a very wealthy merchant man, likely a Jew, also baptized by Paul. He says, I, I baptized these two guys, lest anyone just say that I had baptized in my own name. I didn't do that. Paul likely would have been baptizing people, if he did any baptisms at all, with a variation, perhaps, of the formula that we use today. I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And some people will baptize only in the name of Jesus. Some people will baptize by sprinkling. Some people will baptize by dunking. Some people will baptize by dunking forward. Some people baptize by dunking backward. It doesn't matter really all that much with regard to the method of baptism, with the exception of the fact if you insist on just sprinkling, then that, I believe, is wrong. But I've had times when I have poured water over the head as well as dunk completely immersed in the water, depending on the individual. I won't try to dunk somebody who's a fearful person who doesn't really like to get their hair wet uh, or has a certain fear of getting under the water. And I, uh, I know of one individual who had a fear of being put underwater. And she was very, very uncertain about getting baptized. But when she came to that place, she wanted to be baptized because she wanted to identify herself with Christ. And she went under bravely, without difficulty. And she's still alive today. She's my wife. She's here with us. So God is good. And he's able to deal with those kinds of things. But Paul isn't talking about methods of baptism. He's talking about the fact that he didn't really baptize very many people at all. He mentions two by name, and he thinks again, he says, oh, and yeah, I, I also baptized the house of Stephanus. Other than that, I can't think of anybody else that I baptized. Because he says, Christ didn't send me to baptize. Now, I want you to underline that verse, because there are several groups of individual churches who insist on what we call baptismal regeneration. The Catholic Church is one of them, but they're not the only ones. There are Protestant churches who do the same. And they have no biblical basis for it. If you turn to the scriptures, and especially if you come here to verse 17 of chapter 1 in 1 Corinthians, Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, said, I didn't baptize very many. In fact, Christ didn't send me to baptize. He sent me to preach the word. And I'm reminded that in Acts chapter 6, verse 4, Peter says very much the same thing. He says, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. There's no mention of baptism in that statement that Peter made in that very first early days of the church. Paul is saying the same thing here. Baptism is important as a way of an individual who is a believer to convey the truth that he is indeed a believer. It is what we call believer's baptism for that reason. 
And that's why I was so pleased to do those four baptisms that we did last weekend. That was a wonderful experience and a wonderful testimony that each of those four people were making before an audience that I am Christ's and I am getting baptized because I identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, my Lord. What a beautiful picture that baptism really is. But as far as salvation is concerned, there is no connection between becoming a saved individual and being baptized. You are baptized after you have become saved. You aren't saved by baptism. So Paul here is again identifying this first issue of division. And it's a very serious issue. Now, the household of Chloe had brought this issue and those other four issues before Paul. And he's going to address the rest of them in the ensuing chapters as we move forward from here. But keep in mind that what Paul is writing to this church about primarily is to correct these issues in a gentle spirit. However, He's going to use some language that will be very, very um, severe and straight to the point because some of the things that are going on in the Corinthian church are absolute evil in Paul's eyes and need to be corrected right this moment. And that's the attention that Paul gives to these matters. It should be the attention that we also give to those same kinds of things in our present day. The church needs to be careful to not allow anything to enter in as leaven that will leaven the whole lump. With that in mind, we'll close our study tonight and we'll continue next week at verse 18. God bless you all.